0: Well, here we are again. (laughs) The last time I did uh, Ruminations, I don't think I was even calling them that back then, was somewhere around seven years ago, I think, at this point. Seven or eight years ago. It's been a very long time. I have since done a full lore run on the Mass Effect trilogy. And, you know, I've streamed Andromeda as well, but I've never actually gone back to these for this format, and I never intended to. Uh, as I've said many times, you guys decide what I ruminate on. So I have to admit, when people suggested a you know a proper remake rumination on the Mass Effect trilogy, I was actually surprised by that. Especially since we're planning a stream of it. At some point in the future, as of recording this, I don't actually know when it's going to happen, so it might have happened before this video actually goes live. Relevant point, I have to admit I'm a little nervous. Uh, obviously, my show has since moved on, but at the same time... I always remember the fact that my show kind of got started because of Mass Effect 3. So, <laughs> and I admit the, game always, the games always have had a, a special place in my thoughts and in my heart. And I want to talk a little bit about why, just in a kind of a general aggregate sense. First of all, I, probably better than some people, understand what it's like to really want to stretch out with your own creativity to make your own individual, unique works. Um, There's nothing wrong with doing what is effectively fan fiction, like Knights of the Old Republic, for example. But at the same time, after a while, you get to the point where it's like, God, I just really want to do my own thing, right? I want to talk about my own thing, or build my own thing. And I know that that's what they were really pushing for in the wake of their severe financial success, which basically came in at the backs of KOTOR, and arguably Neverwinter Nights as well. This, of course, led to their two big branch-outs, Dragon Age and Mass Effect. God, I'm sorry, it's just weird to talk about this, because given that now Dragon Age 4 might be happening, and Mass Effect, whatever, probably won't be happening, it's just weird to think of how things have changed in such a relatively short period of time. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So they really wanted to jump into this, and they understood a few things that they really wanted to do right off the bat. They wanted this to be a series, Unlike Dragon Age Origins, which, as I've talked about many times, including in the proper remake rumination, that was intended to be one game. This was intended to be three. Now, the specific construction of that three has varied substantially, and there's a lot of conflicting interviews out there about the creation of this series, which I've decided after some thought to basically just say, nobody can seem to agree, so we're just going to kind of move over this. A lot of our behind-the-scenes information for projects like this tends to come from interviews, so... I mean, if Bob is saying this, and and Bob 2 is contradicting him, and Bob 3 is contradicting both of them, it's kind of hard to get a real vibe on things. What we do know, what everyone agrees on, is this was intended to be part of a franchise. They wanted this to be part one. And you'll notice that this game goes out of its way to establish a large-scale threat without actually really resolving it, other than in the short term. It also does a great deal to establish its world. Now, I know that's kind of a weird word when it comes to a galaxy, but the world-building of this game is through the roof. It's actually probably one of its strongest suits, in my opinion. And that kind of is part of the whole, you know, we're building a world, we're trying to flesh it out as much as possible thing. And if I'm being honest, I think that's at least one of the major reasons why Mass Effect was so successful. Another reason... And this is going to sound weird because I think this is one of those things that some people acknowledge and some people understand and some people don't. But either way, I have a, I have a suspicion that just about everyone who played Mass Effect liked this, whether they were cognizant of it or not. See, Mass Effect is very hard science. On the Mohs scale, it's probably about a 4, I would say. That's my own estimation, obviously. Other people disagree on that, and you can disagree with that as well. If you're not familiar with the Mohs scale of science fiction hardness, 1 is... (laughs) and 6 is real life. So 4 is what I personally think of Mass Effect as something that is really close to stuff that actually could be believable in real life, with a few very notable exceptions. The implementation of EZO, Biotics, the Mass Effect field, the, the Mass Effect for which the series is named, is basically the one thing that just kind of bypasses physics. But it does so in a logical and consistent way. So even the one thing that doesn't actually make this hard science is something that is fairly logical. This game also does a lot of very small little things to establish itself in the manner that I just mentioned of making it believable. Like, for example, the fact that not every... Even though species can talk to each other thanks to translations and to, you know, technology and to just knowing other languages, there are still issues with being able to interact with each other on a normal level. While there are certainly humanoids, they're not as byproduct standard as usual, and there is some substantial variance. I mean, the Hanar. Come to mind immediately. We also have the fact that some of them literally consume such drastically different types of food that they can't eat the same even types of food as other people, right? Just little stuff like that. And there's lots of it. Lots of little details that are all peppered throughout the whole thing that make it believable. This is also something that deals with, for lack of a better way to put it, white-collar crime a lot. I know that sounds like a strange thing to point out, but... um I'm trying to think of how to phrase this without sounding amazingly cynical. Basically, white collar crime is very believable. It's the kind of thing that makes you think, "Ah, oh, yeah, no," <laughs> right? It, it corrupt executive, corrupt local official, corrupt bureaucrats—all of that stuff is so normal and ordinary in the collective unconsciousness or consciousness of you know modern day society that we look at that and think of that as. Something that establishes believability, which probably says something about a real-life society, but let's not get into that. They also go for distinct visual looks. Now, I say plural because that's actually going to be relevant for future games when I discuss Mass Effect 2 next week or next, next week, or whatever. I, I, I've i already actually set up the schedule for this. It's going to be a nightmare schedule. It's going to be all over the place. But anyways, <clears throat> the next video we'll talk about Mass Effect 2 and its visual distinction. But they were trying for a distinct look. This is actually something I've talked about before, how if you're going to make a science fiction work, you have to make your own distinct look. Now, the Mass Effect series actually went for looks. But Mass Effect 1 has a different look from Mass Effect 2, which makes sense for reasons I'll get into in a minute. Mass Effect 1's looks, his overall approach is... A really weird blend of late 90s and about the 70s-ish. Like, you ever see some of the really old sci-fi where it's all white and it's all plasticine? Like, okay, this is going to sound like a strange parallel, but in episode 2 of Star Wars, Attack of the Clones, when they go to Kamino, the clone planet, the aesthetic of those of the inside there, the, the everything is white and everything is just kind of you know, sort of bland, but not really, that's the 70s look. 70s and 80s, really, but mostly the 70s look. And they kind of combine that with sort of a more modern 90s look. So everything looks bland and kind of plasticky, but at the same time has highlights of it to make it look a little more polished. This is especially apparent when we get to the Citadel, which I know I just said white and bland, but you can kind of see why that overall aesthetic is rather prevalent. Not for all of it, though. Not everywhere has the exact same aesthetic. But you get the general gist of this. If you look at something in the Mass Effect universe, and it's just like a random picture, and you don't know it's from Mass Effect, there's a decent chance you can identify it on site. Another thing to mention about Mass Effect 1, and I've talked about this extensively, is the music. The music of Mass Effect 1 is... Uh, good, obviously. But it's also... Weirdly atmospheric. I almost I say weirdly because it's not quite fully ambiance, but a lot of it is the kind of music you can just leave on in the background and just let it play for a while. You know, another good example of this style of music would be basically the entire Stellaris soundtrack to use an example of this. Now, this is good. It helps to elevate the nature of the game. It it makes it so that the game when you're playing through it, the music is never getting in the way, but also never really dragging focus which is both good and bad, depending on your preferences and your opinions and things. There are a few specific songs that stand out, but you get the general gist. Let's talk about the gameplay. So, God, where do I start? This is the most RPG Mass Effect game we ever get. Uh, Of the five, if you count the mobile game. And there's actually, if we're counting that, we could get to a few others. But of the four main Mass Effects, this is by far the most RPG one. There's a lot of different equipment. Uh, the, the armor actually has light, medium, and heavy values. And there's armor at all, which is something they basically ejected in later games. There's uh, modifications you can do to your guns. There's levels and, and a fairly large talent tree, which is actually kind of boring, but it's there nonetheless. In short, there's a lot of... RPG-ness to it, mostly in the sense of the construction of the gameplay, not the story. And I point that out because, well, because, because this is one of those things that we've tried to talk about for years and never really come to a good consensus. See, there's a difference between a game that is an RPG with other mechanics in it and an other mechanic game with RPG mechanics in it. Let me explain what I mean by that. This is an RPG shooter but Mass Effect 2 is a shooter with RPG elements. (laughs) Now, you might be thinking, well, is is that just because of the fact that it's got more focus on the RPG mechanics? Well, no. Because there are actually games that are very clearly not RPGs with more in-depth RPG mechanics than this game has. As I've argued for years and years, what really defines a primary RPG versus a secondary RPG is entirely dependent on the tone of the work. Now... That pulls a little bit away from core mechanics, like leveling and equipment and customization and talent trees, and a little bit more into style and approach of the actual gameplay. Now, I I know that leveling and all that stuff is part of gameplay, but what I mean by that is if you sit back and actually look at the construction of this game, what do you see? Well, you go through your tutorial mission, okay? Then you get dropped on the Citadel, and there's a pretty big section of info dumping. And then it's like, all right, go, do stuff. Now, you are given direction on where to go next, but you don't have to. I know plenty of players, myself included, who spend tons of time basically treating the Citadel as the first world. You don't have to, though. You can just leave. Like, you can do a couple quick quests and get the, the Spectre status set up, and then you can just go. <laughs> you can, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, because it's been a little while since I've watched a massive Effect speedrun, I'm pretty sure all you need to do is grab grab Rex and Garrus as a consequence, and then grab Rex. I just said Rex twice, didn't I? (laughs) Shepard. Then go grab Tali, excuse me, and then go do the, the Spectre quest, and then you're out. But there's like 20 other quests you can do on the Citadel. And honestly, I usually do those other 20 quests before I do the aforementioned quests. You don't have to, though. You can then go to any of the other worlds in any order. And do their quests and side quests. You can also go to Random worlds and roam around on the Mako for a while. FF7 has ruined me. I keep trying to say Mako. And you can kind of see what I mean by the tone of the work and the structure of the gameplay feels more like an RPG. It's it, Obviously, this is going to vary from person to person's opinion, since RPG might be one of the most umbrella, you know, large-scaping terms that exist when it comes to game genres, but... This feels like a game which is, here's your world, here's your missions, you know, you, here's, here's your progress. Go do stuff. And as you're going to do stuff, you see a lot of side stuff to do. And that side stuff is in the form of quests, very specifically. Now, the side quests in Mass Effect 1 aren't great, if we're just being completely honest with ourselves. And especially a lot of the little side quests out in the galaxy are actually, frankly, bad. Uh, whenever we get around to doing a review of this game, I imagine that might actually get a gameplay negative because it's always get some calm transmission, go to one of the four locations that exist in the game because there's like the big warehouse and then there's the ship corridors and then there's like the cave and there's, I think there's a fourth one. I don't even remember a fourth one off the top of my head. But you, you know what? I mean? You can picture them, right? It's it's amazingly copy-pasted years before Dragon Age 2 and then you, you you kill an enemy or loot a thing And then you go turn in an audio transmission, and that's basically the galactic side quests. And they kind of suck. At least from a gameplay perspective. There's some cool story behind there, and a weirdly large number of them have to do with Cerberus, and how Cerberus is disgustingly, horribly evil. Huh. Anyways. There's mini-games. The squad is in this game, and they're completely useless. I'm not sure. Like, this is Kingdom Hearts' problem right here. And I know that sounds like a strange comparison, but in Kingdom Hearts 1 or 2 are both good examples of this. Other than the the, the group-up abilities, which require your party members to be there, they might as well not be there at all. They are so useless! I mean, I could go back to Star Fox if you want another example of useless party members. So that's kind of how Mass Effect 1 has always been for me. The party members might as well not even be there for combat. That's relevant, because I'm going to bring that point up later. Though you can set them up and and give them stuff, and it's basically irrelevant. (laughs) So that's nice. There are builds you can do kind of, but not really. Most of your build is basically just picking a class. This is one of the reasons why, as much as I do think this is more of an RPG-focused game, I don't think that's necessarily a better thing than what they do in later games. Because there's not really any building. Let me try and explain what I'm talking about. Some games have a thing where, okay, you can choose to be, you can choose to have more pens in your right hand, or you can choose to have more coins in your left hand. You can't choose both of these talents. You have to pick one of them. They're mutually exclusive. And if you pick this one, it'll give you a few other choices and branches, which you can't fill out. And same with this one. This is customization. Now, I know this is going to sound strange, but imagine if I had the exact same choices, but there's no mutually exclusive, and I can fill out all of these. This is not customization. This is leveling. It is, in fact, alternate leveling is the term for that, for uh, what I usually refer to as horizontal leveling. And that's what Mass Effect 1 does. For as much as it looks like you have a talent tree, you kind of don't. It's just, here's progression. You can decide what to progress first... You can decide what you want to max out and what you don't, but there's not really a lot of build customization or variety to it. No, the actual variety and playstyle is in picking your class. That really determines everything else. Now that's good, and will only get better in the future. In fact, I know this is going to sound antithetical, but I actually think Mass Effect Andromeda probably did the best overall with regards to customizing your loadout, since you could mix and match abilities from different classes, which allowed you to make an actual build. But I'm getting off topic. In Mass Effect One, you pick your class. Still good. And I like how they take the three specializations and basically make crossovers of them. Because you got tech, you got biotics, and you got melee. And you've got tech biotics, tech melee. It's melee. I say melee. It's soldier, but you know, tech melee, tech biotics, biotics biotics melee, and then just each, pure melee, pure biotics, pure tech. And there's your there's your setups. And I like that. I think that's actually a good idea. It's a little bit not great. I mean, it's it's not the best setup I've ever seen, but it's a good baseline for what would eventually allow for you know, better customization going forward. And Lord knows I did enjoy playing through this quite a bit in you know, quite a few different ways. But, uh, of course, I always tend to default to Soldier, mostly because Soldier has a few more options. And, of course, it has that, I forget what it's called right now, Withstand. The Live Forever ability, which, if you fully upgrade, allows you to live for as long as the cooldown is. So, I mean, who needs the Mako at that point, am I right? I suppose I should talk about the Mako. I'm one of those extremely weirdos who actually likes the Mako. I know I'm not alone in that. I've been talking to a lot of you for a lot of years, and I know a lot of you like the Mako, too. But for me, the, I will never forget the first time I ever popped in the Mako, and the physics engine was so wonky and wrong that I literally it, could not manage to figure out going forward in one direction. I actually put the game down for a little bit that very first playthrough because I was just like, "What in the hell?" I had gone to a therum first, of course I did. I wanted to get you know my other party member, and I was just. Like, I... It turns out I had a bit of a bug. Go figure. <laughs> But nevertheless, it took a while for the Mako to grow on me, which it did. There's just something enjoyable about driving up what is effectively a sheer cliff wall just because you can. Just because you, you, screw you, wall. And, and of course, very creative and very intelligent people have done some very fun things with the Mako over the years. It's intended that you're not be able to use it in certain areas. But you can bypass several of those restrictions. Funny fact, actually, the Mako, when you're in it, gives you substantially reduced experience for any kills you get in it. Which makes sense, because it does an absolutely ludicrous amount of damage. The interesting part, and I'm a little surprised they did this, is the Mako isn't... How do I phrase this? It's not a separate load. It's not a separate zone. You pop in and out of the Mako live, so the enemies you're fighting on foot or on the Mako are the same enemies, which I know sounds dumb, but from an RPG perspective, that's a little harder to pull off than it sounds. It's probably part of why the Mako is as buggy as it is. Like in a game like, say, the old Unreal Tournaments or Halos, you know, vehicle combat is is easy because the whole game is designed around that type of thing. Mass Effect? Eh, not so much. Either way, the Mako's awesome. You can also, if you really want to, just get something down to low health, pop out and kill it on foot, and get full experience. Just saying. <sighs> one of the things they wanted to do with this one was they wanted to make it so you are playing an actual character. Now, at the time, this is actually kind of unusual for these kind of role-playing games. Look at any of the big ones. Um, Fallout 1 and 2... Neverwinter Nights, Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, uh, even, well, arguably Knights of the Old Republic. In all of these games, you basically played a blank slate character. Oh, you might have some backstory, but that backstory was sufficiently vaguely defined that you could slot in whatever you wanted to in that place. With Mass Effect, they were beginning to kind of breach into a new territory of storytelling, which would eventually be concluded with, Uh, The Witcher, actually, of all things. Actually, I'm not sure when Witcher 1 came out relative to Mass Effect 1, but the point being, this was a different approach. Because the whole idea is you're playing a pre-existing character who you can then guide the specific slice of the character, but not a fully unique character. This, of course, leads to the age-old argument of whether this is an RPG or not, and I don't even care about that argument. But I liked this. I liked the fact that we could choose our background, cyberpunk style, and I liked the fact that we could play someone who is who is an actual entity and then just kind of decide the flavor of that person. Don't mistake me. I'll still prefer something like, say, Dragon Age Origins or Baldur's Gate 2, where you can roleplay a lot and decide many different nuances of exactly what type of character you play. But I still enjoy this approach as well as a separate and different approach to things. I actually liked playing Shepard, and it's probably telling that despite the fact that, you know, there's really only the one Shepard, arguably, plenty of people have that mentality and mindset of my Shepard, the Shepard I care about, the Shepard that I built based on my interactions with the crew and the, and the people. Which brings me to the next point I want to talk about, that I think that was num- point number two. So I've already mentioned point number one of why I feel Mass Effect 1 was as successful as it was. Point number two is basically what at the time... It's so weird to think about this now. What at the time was known as the Bioware Standard. Bioware was very well known, and for good reason, with making characters that were three-dimensional. And usually three-dimensional in a pretty typical way. You can actually draw parallels from a lot of their main characters across. Neverwinter Nights, KOTOR, um, uh, Mass Effect, and Dragon Age. You, You can literally draw parallels. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, though. Even though they use similar approaches, each of these characters is a fully... Well, most of them are fully fleshed-out three-dimensional individuals, regardless of their similarity to archetypes or tropes. And this leads to the fact that you tend to care. This is also added to by the fact that you have a ship in this game. Now, I know that sounds like a really weird thing to point out, but I swear it's relevant. Because it means you have an automatic place that you go to after every mission, which from a gameplay perspective gives you a sense of geographical continuity, something I've talked about many times lately. But from a storytelling perspective, it also gives you a place where you can go and reconnoiter with your crew after and, you know, in, in, in between missions. Without that, if you just, if this was pure hub-based, for example, if you just went to, uh, Pheros, and then you went to Novaria, for example, and there was no in-between with the ship, the game would be severely lacking for the absence of those interactions on the ship. If they were to still try to write those in, they would have to try and bake those into the mission. This is actually what most games do. Most games try to do their kind of storytelling effectively in mission. I know that sounds like a weird way to put that, but let me just use a parallel. Look at any Tales of game. Virtually any Tales of game... As you're progressing through the game, through, through the RPG, the events that flesh out the characters happen during the missions as you progress through the quests, as you progress through the main plotline. The advantage of having a hub to call your own home, in addition to building up investment, I know a lot of players were rather you know, fond of the Normandy and the Normandy SR2, but uh, in addition to building some investment in the player, it gives you a place to just go and interact I want to know more about the world. I want to know more about the people. Liara, let's chat. Let's talk about this. Hey, Rex, what's going on? And we learn more through them and through their lenses. It means that about half of the game is, you know, shoot, 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 shoot. The other half is wandering around the ship talking to crew members. But it works. It works surprisingly well having these two things banded and meshed together. Which is probably one of the biggest things Mass Effect 3 screwed up. But I don't want to get onto that right now. We'll get there. Don't worry. We'll get there. All three were requested. You insane people, you. Anyways. <clears throat> so that's point number two. Thanks to the Bioware standard and the, the construction of the, the very gameplay narrative. I say gameplay narrative because it is both the narrative and the gameplay construction of the game. We now have a place where we can go and check. Oh, and you know, by the way, the best part is it's optional. This is the thing that makes this a little bit better, in my opinion, than the usual RPG approach of having characterization in missions. Because this way, if you, don't, if you happen to not care, you don't have to. Or if you're doing a speed run, you don't have to... You, you know, it's just, okay, let's go, let's go. Anyways. I haven't really talked about the story itself yet, because where do I begin? There's a lot to talk about, weirdly enough, and at the same time, not a lot. I was surprised on replay how short this game is, but I shouldn't be. As I've been getting older, I've noticed a lot of the really, really good RPGs, like the really best ones, aren't actually all that long. You know, 20 hours-ish, depending on how much side stuff you do. I'd point that out, and you're probably thinking, well, that sounds like a long game. No, it's not. <laughs> I've played... Just this year, I played Persona 5, which I think was a 44-hour run, something like that. Just to name one example, there are the, the usual standard length actually for an RPG is forty to seventy hours if you if you look it up. that can range of course, but that's that's the average that's the median so for games like these, and like say i don 't know Chrono Trigger is another good example it's funny to think of how short it is, but that's okay because there's a lot of density with the exception of the random side quests of roaming around on the in the galaxy map, which I've already referenced. Virtually all of the actual main areas are very dense, with a lot of things to do in a relatively short period of time. Uh, even the one I would feel is probably one of the weakest ones from a gameplay perspective—that would be Novaria—still, nevertheless, has a lot going on. It's just there's stretches of uh, and pacing issues with regards. But I suppose I just let's just go through this in order. Now I know I've said this story before, and I will say the story at least one more time in the future. The very, 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 very first time I played this game, I actually didn't know that much about it. I knew it was a Bioware RPG, and that was all I needed to know, because once upon a time, that was enough. (sighs) Sad face. And so I'm watching the intro movie, cinematic, and I'm just like, okay, yep, this is cool, this is cool. I'm not going to skip it, obviously, because I want to see the whole thing. Wait, why is there a dialogue option popping up? Wait, this is gameplay? This is the game engine? I know that sounds pathetic, but I really was legitimately impressed by how they were approaching it since, I mean, obviously there were better cinematics and there were games with better graphics, but seeing the... I think it's... The the way I want to describe it is the directorial approach to the usage of the camera made me think that I was watching an actual pre-rendered cutscene rather than just seeing a cutscene built in-engine. As I've described many times, there's actually three types of video game cutscenes. There's pre-rendered, which is basically a video file that you play. There's in-engine, which is what you're seeing is rendered in the actual engine, which can be pre-rendered or post-rendered, but either way, it's, it's something that is actually visible in-game. And then there's in-gameplay. Mass Effect 1 actually doesn't employ the pre-rendered at all. It only has the in-engine and the in-gameplay. If you're wondering what an example of an in-gameplay cutscene is, basically any time the crew members are discussing things or debating the plot, while you're running around in the mission, that's an in-gameplay cutscene. This, I think, is the third biggest reason why this game managed as well as it did. Because a lot of the game's cutscenes are designed in a way that either you don't actually leave the actual gameplay to do it, which is talking to crew members or whatever, or it's happening while you're actively running and gunning through a mission. Because of this, this probably contributes to the reason why the game is so relatively short, but also benefits, because it's increasing the overall... uh, It's increasing the density of what's happening. But again, it's also making the pace wonderful, because every mission just kind of has a natural flow to it. And that enables you to never really feel like there's boring stretches of whatever, unless you decide to go and explore with the Mako, as previously described. So... Uh, we end up uh, we end up going and, and going through the initial mission. You'll notice they drop things on us, the player, right off the bat. I've always thought that was an interesting approach, and I still do to this day. They basically say, yeah, so there's Reapers coming, and they're coming to destroy all organic life, and uh, you have to stop them. Right off the beginning, they give you the general gist of the overall arc. They could have tried to keep that a mystery. They could have tried to, to prevent you from understanding it or have you, you know, understand it as you go through the game, you know, learning as the characters learn. But instead, they drop the bombshell on your face at the very beginning. This is actually interesting in its own right because they do the same thing in Dragon Age Origins if you're paying attention. Anyways. And Kotor, now that I think about it. Anyways, I really am getting off topic because the relevant point is we have our understanding of what's going on, and I feel that is very important. We are trying to save the galaxy from a genocidal threat. I've said something several times, and it bears repeating. When you get to extremes, the usual rules go out the window. Uh, to use an example of that, let's say someone walks up to you and say, "Hey, Hey, I'll give you five bucks to murder this person in cold blood, and you will say, No! You will say no, right? What if they give you a million bucks? Now, in fairness, I'm pretty sure everyone in chat would still say no to that. Okay. What if there is a meteor that is coming to destroy all life on the entire planet? Everyone will be instantly killed unless, and I know this is a dumb construction, but just hear me out, unless you murder that person in cold blood. That's what I mean when I say when it gets to extremes, the rules go out the window. Now the good news is in real life, usually such extreme scenarios aren't actually possible because there's no logical connection between you killing this random dude and you know the meteor destroying all life on the planet. But fiction likes to play with those scenarios a lot. So here we have an extreme. The Reapers are coming and they're going to wipe out every, everyone in the galaxy. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty extreme scenario. Naturally, the rules aren't thrown out the window at all. In fact, they apply to you even harder than before. This is an important narrative point of Mass Effect One, and one of its more dominant themes. The idea I've actually mentioned earlier, the corrupt bureaucrat, the corrupt you know, manager, the corrupt executive That is one of our primary antagonists as far as narrative speaking. Yeah, we're fighting against Saren. But what is Saren working through? Saren has access to tremendous wealth of resources and personnel, and has a large network of people who are all basically on his side, which means when we're actually going through the game, we're usually fighting them. And the things that are in our way is usually bureaucratic red tape or straight-up corruption. Vermeer, not Vermeer, excuse me, Noveria again being an excellent example of this, although Pharos is a good example too. In both of these worlds, the main overall obstacle, other than, you know, the the final encounter what we're going for, is actually the corrupt people in the way. The people who don't seem to understand that, look, we've got a... Reapers, okay? Of course, the most commonly known example of this, the one that is most memed, is the frickin' Council. Reapers, right. Although they will actually get even worse in Mass Effect 2, the fact is they are still aggravating in this game. They are the obstinate bureaucrats, a character archetype I refer to many times when it comes to discussing fiction. They're designed in this way to kind of showcase how frustrating it would be to be the person who knows and to try to convince everyone else of that. If everyone actually believed the Reapers were coming, yeah, okay, we'd, we'd probably go ahead and get a little bit going on, but how? That, that's, that can't fit you. Sure, some ancient, great, powerful organization from beyond the stars is going to show up and wipe out all life on the galaxy. Sure, Shepard. Can we get a psych valve on this? Just... Yeah, no, it's far easier to believe that this is just a load of hooey. It doesn't help that during the cutscene where you try to convince the council, you basically rave like a loony, loony person. Not a Looney Tunes. That would be hysterical. Just all of a sudden drop an anvil on Saren. I've talked about Saren a couple of times. Let's go ahead and talk about him briefly. Saren is probably, I'd say, the one of the big reasons why this game tends to succeed as well as it does because Saren is shepherd on the other side shepherd is someone who gets uh, gets a reputation who gets things done who has access and resources who's a spectre who has the backing of the alliance and the backing of several uh, portions of said alliance that is the united states or excuse me the united nations systems alliance which i think i'm still getting the name wrong but it's basically the earth military earth itself isn't really unified but there is a unified Earth construct when it comes to organization and pol- politics when it comes to the greater galaxy. So you can see why it's kind of a complex thing. It's almost like there's some really good world building at play here. Anyways, Saren is... so it, it Basically, if Shepard was given another 10, 20 years to just really get invested into the galaxy, that would be Saren. Because Saren already has... Shepard, even just starting off, has all this resources and contacts. Saren's been doing that for a couple decades. He is very well entrenched. He is arguably considered to be... I've, I've heard some people say he is in the running for the most dangerous individual in the galaxy. Along Arya, the Shadow Broker, and Tim, the Elusive Man. And I agree. As every way he is portrayed, this is someone with tremendous wealth and power and resources, in addition to being a damn good fighter one-on-one. Anywho. <clears throat> moving on. Saren, though. The other way he is the uh, parallel to she- uh, Shepherd is the fact that Saren... <sighs> Saren is what Shepard could have been under the wrong circumstances. But more to the point, uh, Saren also... There's no nice way to say this. He's basically a renegade, to use the the, the game's terminology. Shepard can be renegade or paragon, but if we were to compare between uh, Mr. Anderson, <laughs> pun intended, who is clearly trying to lean more towards paragon, at least in this game, and Saren, who is leaning far more towards renegade, Shepard can choose either direction to go in. Now... <sighs> I once had a friend tell me that if Saren and Shepard had teamed up, imagine what they could have accomplished. <laughs> I suppose this is a good time as any to talk about Mr. Anderson. Uh, David Anderson, Captain Anderson, is awesome, and not just because of his voice actor, but he's awesome because he is someone who is competent and intelligent as well as perceptive. In short, he is the opposite of the obstinate bureaucrat. He is someone above you, but nevertheless who has a brain, believes you, and is trying to help you at all costs. You'll notice Anderson, without question, accepts your concept and idea of what the Reapers are, and immediately tries to back you in that as far as he can. Unfortunately, he's not really much of a politician, which makes sense because he's in the military, but you can kind of see why he is the one who is so beloved especially because the game goes out of its way to add him in parallel to Udina. Now, I was praising the Bioware character standard earlier. Udina, unfortunately, while he serves a character point, is kind of a jackass who deserves to be punched many times. I'm not sure he deserved what he got in 3, but he definitely deserves to be punched many times. Why? Because he's an asshole. Excuse my language. No, none of the other factors matter, really. You could say that he's a politician. You could say he's someone who's really pushing for Earth supremacy or Earth uh, interests, depending on your interpretation of him. I hear some people say he is human-centric. And I hear some people say he is just... How do I phrase this? He... <sighs> some people argue that Udino takes such a hard-line stance specifically because of the fact that Earth and humans in general are so new to the galactic stage. We reached out to the stars and then were nearly wiped out by a vastly superior power because this is apparently Babylon 5. And yes, this game was inspired by Babylon 5, although only in part. Obviously, they took an inspiration from a lot of things. Anyways. <clears throat> but no, we, we, we nearly got wiped out in our first interstellar interactivity. Udina is one of the people who, it has been argued, rightly sees that we are, um, we're the we're the small kids on the block. Let me put this to you another way. How many of you have played, you know, a 4X game? Especially a space-bound 4X game, like Stellaris or whatever. Or Civilization. I want you to imagine that you're playing that game, but everyone else has been playing it for like 40 turns. And you just started. That's Earth, right there. (laughs) That's the simplest way to explain that. Everyone else has a massive head start on us. And funnily enough, I'm going to use that comparison again when we get to Mass Effect 3. Not with humans, with Asari. So, you can see Udina's perspective. He is playing hardball because he feels he has to. He's doing the opposite of what the Federation does in Season 1 of TNG. We have to present a strong front at all times, otherwise we're screwed. The problem is, whether you agree with his philosophy, whether you even think that is his philosophy, maybe you think he's actually, a, a, like I said, a racist, a human supremacist, which some people do think. The problem is, he's an asshole. And that sort of supersedes everything else. I know people who remember nothing about his character, his politics, his modus operandi, the way he interacts with others, other than the fact that he's a jerk. Because that is his dominant character trait, and that is true basically throughout this franchise. And I do feel that is a shame, because he will forever be remembered as the guy who nobody really cared about and nobody liked. I mean, did anybody pick Udina for the council? Don't answer that question. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be people in chat. Of course I did. He's so awesome. But Udina does serve one good literary purpose, and that is to serve as a way to exemplify Anderson. So here's the problem. One of the, uh, I've talked about this many times. There are two ways to draw something, whether it's metaphorically or literally. So let's, I know I've used this example recently. Let's say I want to draw a bird. Well, there's two ways I can do this, roughly speaking. One is I can draw the bird in one of the many styles I can do that. The other is I can draw everything other than the bird, and with the negative space that is left over, give the impression of a bird. In this case, what they then do from a literary perspective is they draw the bird, which in this case is Anderson, and then they draw the negative space as well to exemplify it, which in this case is Udina. Thus, both points are trying to shove us towards being positively inclined towards our CEO. Which makes sense, actually. Because, I mean, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> the problem is it pushes a little bit too hard, like I said. And it becomes his only character trait. I haven't talked much about the Citadel. The Citadel is a fascinating idea. So, from a core perspective, it's a space station. So, okay, cool. It's all pristine and clean and nice, and there's these weird things around that just keep the place without anyone actually having control over them. That's strange. And if the funny thing is, you don't really find this out unless you dig into the lore. But if you do dig into the lore, you find out that we didn't build the Citadel. We found it. I'm trying to put into words how crazy and insane that is, but there's actually a lot of that going on in this franchise, and it is very much on purpose. We found existing super tech, and we used it to develop our own tech and along certain lines, because because that's how that works. I know that sounds like a strange statement, but, I mean, if you... (sighs) This is going to sound like a weird parallel, but Fallout, okay? In Fallout, they never came up with the integrated circuit. They never invented that. Instead, what they did is they perfected the nuclear element. So the technology of Fallout literally branches off into a completely different divergent type of technology because so much of their tech is based on that massive thing, right? In short, the robots of Fallout, if, if they were somehow to exist in real life, would be utterly incompatible with real-life robots because their fundamental designs are completely different. However... If every race in the galaxy comes across the same thing, in this case the relays, and the technology that those are based on, and then comes to the Citadel, which is also based on the same tech, then it kind of naturally follows that everyone in the galaxy, with only a few exceptions, tends to follow similar technological lines. They might have significances and variances, but they're all using an integrated circuit to carry the analogy. That'll be important later. I bring that up, though. Excuse me. Because... It's one of the things I find most fascinating about the Citadel, is that it's this beautiful, wonderful paradise place, which is portrayed in. I mean, listen to the music in the presidium for God's sakes, and it's you know light and it's happy and they do a good job with making it look like the inner circle thing. You know, you know, you look into the distance and you see it going up, and there's like I said, there's a few quests to do there which are decent, and it gets across the tone of the game very quickly. Because aside from a few thugs, everything you are conflicting with here is on the, you know, the white-collar crime kind of a problem. Um, And that's important because, well, because of one of the overall tonal points of Mass Effect 1, which I'm going to address in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about a couple of characters. Oh, no. I didn't do it. I, I meant to, but I forgot to. Oh, crap. Uh, Okay, so, uh, (laughs) Mr. Olenko. I forgot to look up how to pronounce his name. I know, I know. I've never liked him as a character, and so I've never let him live before. (laughs) Um, I always want to say Kaiden. It might be Kaiden. Either way, Mr. Olenko. and I know this sounds like a weird branching point, but I bring him up because, well, actually, I'm sorry, that's not who I want to talk about. I I just, I noticed my notes of my characters, and I I literally put space in my notes for a a pronunciation guide, and it's blank, because I forgot to... I swear this is better than the last rumination. I hope it is. I don't know. (sighs) No, the real one I want to talk about is Garrus. That's the one I want to talk about. So, well he's not the first party member we encounter... In fact, he's not even the third-party member we encounter. The fact is, he is the one most relevant to what's going on in the Citadel. He is someone who is a good example of the kind of white-collar, above-board, normal part of society that we're encountering through the overwhelming part of Mass Effect 1. He is a good insight into that because he is someone who is a cop, part of C-Sec, who is specifically trying to look into corrupt people with regards to his job. And he is frustrated because C-Sec constantly hampers him. Because, well, he's going through the exact same problems we are. Less extreme, because we're trying to deal with the Reapers, and he's trying to deal with thug number 3378. But you can kind of see why he then automatically attaches himself to us. Because we are immediately kindred spirits. This is, of course, part of the reason, I think at least, why Garrus is so relatable to the player. Because the player... I remind you, is facing the extreme. We know the Reapers exist. We know they're coming, and we're dealing with red tape. So Garrus comes along, and he's like, God, I hate dealing with red tape. And it's like, I get that guy. So the game naturally pushes us towards him. This is in addition to the fact that he has all the other awesome stuff, great voice actor and great character. But I point this out because the game does little tricks like this constantly to try and push you for or against other people, which naturally brings me to Rex. Now, Rex is a fascinating example in Mass Effect 1. Because Rex, you're not really pushed towards or away him. This makes sense, given Vermeier, but the point is the game presents him as an ally who isn't going to take any crap whatsoever. But, he's polite and reasonable. Now, that interesting dichotomy right there means that people are going to automatically either be like, Yes! Or oh depending on their own personal perspective again deliberately designed to be neutral <laughs> and of course rex is naturally rather no no nonsense you'll notice i'm not actually talking a lot about the characters that's because to be blunt there's not a lot to talk about the characters in the first game there, don't worry, don't mistake me there's some something to talk about but most of the characterization is far heavier in the second game which i'll discuss later so This, of course, leads us to Tali. Now, Tali, well, she's an interesting one because the first thing we see is that she's a younger woman who is simultaneously competent because she's the one who brings us, you know, the great evidence against Saren. In fact, she's our linchpin. She's the thing that finally helps us to get convince the council of our case against Saren, gets us Spectre status, gets us our ship. In short, she is the plot coupon that un- unlocks all of the game for us, both narratively and gameplay. Now, don't mistake me. I'm not trying to do- say that dismissively. What I'm saying is, once again, the game is playing tricks narratively by trying to encourage you to like this person, because she unlocks so much of the game for you. She's so necessary for you. And... This is a part of her two-part the punch. She's the, you know, young daughter, uh, not, not daughter, young sister, young daughter, young, I, I, whatever you want to call it. The, the, the protective instinct thing is strong with her. And, and by that I mean they're trying to make, put her in a position where you want to protect her and you want to be there. for her. Remember, first thing we find out about her is that she has found out something horrifying and she's on the run. And she needs to be saved. That's pretty much the thrust of going into her, is that she's in over her head. And we need to rescue her. But she's no Princess Peach. She's not someone who's simply incompetent and sitting there waiting for us to rescue her. She found this info on her own. She is a very skilled engineer and slicer. And she can handle her own in a a gunfight. So, she hits a very nice balance of needing help and needing protection while also being actually capable of standing up on her own right. Thus, again, we are pushed towards her. And, of course, she gives us insight into the Quarians and the Geth, which is one of our main mooks of this this game. The Geth is an interesting insight in this one, because they really are here just to be stormtroopers. You know, they're the dark spot of the game. All right, here's some Geth. Okay. We fight Geth throughout the entire game. Now... That's interesting in its own right, because the game phrases it as if our main enemy is the Geth, and in fact, many people in universe think that this is all a Geth army with Saren at its head, which isn't completely inaccurate, it's just it's just wrong. <laughs> it's, just, it's just incorrect, because it doesn't get across the nuance and complexity of what's going on here. This is something that will be coming up in the second game, so I'm only mentioning this in brief here. But, of course, it does make sense to have a universal enemy when it comes to a game like this. You can only do specific enemies so much until it kind of loses its vibe. You'll notice that in the second game, just to talk about this briefly, so in the first game it's Geth. In the second game it's actually the the various squads. Uh, Eclipse, <sighs> what is it eclipse blue suds and red pack i think or something like that. the three big mercenary groups those are the standard enemies of mass effect 2 and then we get to mass effect 3 and then it's cerberus for some reason anyways you get the idea there is a there is a logic behind it the only catch is you need to make it so that your your MOOC makes sense it needs to be logical while you're fighting this enemy all the time in Mass Effect 1, it makes perfect sense. There really is a Geth army behind Saren's back, because they're the ones who are the... Uh, let's call them the Heretics. I think that's a good way to call them. For no reason. And in the second game, it makes sense that the three Merc Packs are against you, specifically because of the fact you're doing so much underhanded stuff. And who's the other big enemy in the second game? Well, that's the, that's the Husks, which makes sense given the collectors. But I'm getting off topic. Point being, uh, this leads me to Liara. So... We got a uh, Therum, which is actually a very short world compared to the other big ones. Uh, every other world, Pharos, Novaria, Vermeer, arguably Elos, is all larger. Elos? All of the other worlds are arguably larger than the one to Therum, which makes sense because Therum is literally designed to be Tutorial World 2. So they've already tutorialized you on the gameplay. That was the very first mission. And then they tutorialize you on how to interact with the world and vendors, and quests, and equipment, and upgrades, and all that stuff, that's all on the Citadel. Now they have to tutorialize you on how the mission structure is going to go. Having the Mako, you know, zooming around, hopping out, going through dungeons, fighting enemies, etc. That's what Theorem is there for. Although you can do Theorem later. <laughs> In fact, you can do Therem a lot later if you're really mean. It's an amusing cutscene, and I'll admit that. But the problem is, there's like no reason to do it functionally. Because not only are you missing out on a party member, which obviously doesn't matter for gameplay reasons, but it does mean you're missing out when it comes to story. And if you happen to want to romance Liara, well, you probably want to go get her before she starts hallucinating from hunger and and dehydration. The game plays it off as a laugh, too. That always amuses me. But I haven't talked about Liara proper. Liara, she's interesting. So she is the typical example of book smart. Very high int, fairly low wisdom. She is someone who knows a lot, who is very smart. She's probably the best in her field overall, as far as Prothean relics and artifacts. And she is very driven and very willed. free, uh, Self-willed. In other words, she's the kind of person who is going to accomplish a great deal if she is allowed to do so. And if she's not, she's going to frickin' make it happen. This again helps to elevate how Liara, like Tali, is not simply a plot coupon that you have to go and rescue who is completely worthless. She is someone who can and does stand up on her own two feet. It's just she's up against an extreme which she was not ready for. So, you know, that kind of makes sense. The fact that she is able to do as much as she does is actually impressive in its own right. She's also one of the, let's call her the default romance option in this game. So this game has romance in it. (laughs) I would be remiss if I did not talk about this. I've decided after some thought not to look up some specific words, but, uh, and by words I mean names, excuse me. There's a certain person who shall be named, who shall remain nameless, who was writing a book, and as they were, uh, doing their book, they were called upon to discuss Mass Effect. And so they went live on Fox News, which I am gonna name because screw them. And as they did so, they were like, this is literally a sex game. It's basically a pornographic game. They were contested on this point multiple times until finally someone sat them down and actually had them play the game. And they were like, okay, apparently I was completely wrong. I heard from some people that this is what this was, and I was basing my arguments off of that. So this person decided there was nothing wrong with going live on, you know, on what is effectively national television in order to decry a game because it's something they heard. Yeah. Uh, there's a concept it called due diligence. Uh, I admit I don't always succeed at that myself. You know, I, I do try very hard to, to perform due diligence. Due diligence is when you hear something and then you verify it. You look into it. And I've screwed up on that one. We've all screwed up on that one. But I've never gone live on national television to something I heard vaguely and decried it. Just saying. But this is, so romance. Of course there's romance. There's been romance since Baldur's Gate. I don't know why. I know that sounds strange, but I don't know why this is considered such a standard element of the CRPG format. I have argued before, we've talked about this during my Pillars of Eternities 2 stream, it's been debated, we've argued this, that the main reason that romance is considered such a standard feature for this is specifically because it used to be. So that's why it still is what I usually call artifact game design. We do it this way because we used to do it, and that's the only reasoning. I'm sure that there are other valid reasons to have romance in a game like this. After all, part of the point of a CRPG is to get very invested in the characters, and what can be more investing than you know being romantically entangled with them? The problem is... The problem is it all leans on implementation at that point. And I've seen this done well, and I've seen this done poorly over the years. Mass Effect 1's is done moderately well. Here's the problem. So, some of you who know me know that I don't actually do romances when it comes to video games, with, uh, at this point, I think a grand total of, like, three, four exceptions? Hang on. Uh Uh-huh. I think five exceptions total, of which Mass Effect is one of them. Now, in Mass Effect's case, I was impressed by how smoothly and naturally... Uh, our connection to Liara, which was Shepard's Romance Options, Zayden was Shepard's Romance, uh, just kind of slowly prog- progressed and then developed. The problem is, it's kind of designed that way. In fact, it's kind of hard to not romance Liara, which is the problem in hindsight. Because the whole point is her entire character arc is written to be your romance option. Now, she's not the only romance option, and there's other paths you can go, but she is written to be your romance option. It also doesn't really mean anything in this game, to be completely blunt. It effectively only changes a few lines of dialogue at a certain, po- at, at a couple certain points, and then basically, like, the last cutscene, which is optional, because you don't have to do this, changes depending on who you've romanced, and that's kind of it. It really is just there for bonus points, and doesn't, there's no real weight behind it. So I can't really ultimately give it any positives or negatives, it's just kind of there, because that's what we've always done. So, make of that what you will. We will discuss more about this in the next game. Because. <sighs> Therum, of course. Uh, I already talked about that. Therum, Liara. Uh, I'm looking at my notes. I suppose this is a good time to talk about the two military. Well, no, let's, let's save them. Let's save them. Let's talk about Pharos first when we go to deal with the Thorian. So, we go to Pharos, and we find out that they're here as part of a corporate initiative to colonize a planet that they thought wouldn't be colonizable but they think they might get some good money out of it i'm telling you it's all white collar crime like all of it <laughs> you t- you don't understand this is corrupt corporations and 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 bureaucrats and businessmen all the way down it's it's just it's not turtles it's just guys in suits um <laughs> so Pharos is actually better than I remembered on replay, because, in terms of gameplay, primarily. I usually remember Noveria better because I feel the story is better in Noveria. But Pharos feels better gameplay-wise. First of all, we have an actual honest-to-god boss fight. I've argued before there's only one boss fight in Mass Effect 1, and having replayed this, I kind of stand by that. Because Mass Effect 1 didn't really know what to do with boss fights. You know what a boss fight is for the most part in Mass Effect 1? An enemy with slightly more health that hits harder. That's not a boss, that's an elite. Or a SIG. (laughs) Props if you get that. But no. So, Pharos gives us uh, one of the closest approximations to a boss fight when dealing with the Thorian, And, of course, that leads to its own parallels and problems because Saren, of course, got here first. Saren always beats us at everything, because that's just what Saren does. And, And this... I suppose I should mention, we're running around the galaxy trying to find the location... ...of this one great spot, and that'll enable us to activate the, the relay... ...and then it'll allow us to in- usher in slash cancel the Reaper invasion. So, naturally, Saren and Shepard are both after the same things... ...at relatively the same times. <laughs> one moment. I feel like I've been talking for a while. How long have we been going so far? Oh, my God. <laughs> um. So, anyways... You, you can tell I have a lot to say about Mass Effect. I hope this has been a good rumination. I really do. You can't you cannot know how nervous I have been about doing this since so much of my career has been tied to this frickin' games. <laughs> Anyways. Um, one of the main points that Pharaohs gets, other than the obvious, you know, we're behind and and, you know, corrupt, etc., is the fact that it enables us to have extended gameplay sequences which deliberately slide back and forth between the Mako and the character. Now, the nature of these, whether they're good or bad, is up to you. In many ways, I've thought before that it feels like playing a PS2 game, which is funny, because it was actually designed for the Xbox, but the point remaining that there's a lot of sections that feel very console-y, even though this is a, a you know, an actual PC RPG. Um, but from a... I feel the pace is really good. Narratively speaking, though, it's messed up because it helps to showcase how, again, Saren is the par- excuse me, the renegade option through and through. Okay, I need to get this in order to progress with my mission. What do I do? Well, I'm immediately going to sacrifice one of my minions to this thing as part of a bargain in order to get what I want. Now, you could say, that's horrible, that's evil! Well, actually, no, it isn't. It's renegade. <laughs> I hate to make that point. Because Saren himself, and this is emphasized a few times, is portrayed for the most part as not being evil, which is important. And it helps to flesh him out. I say for the most part, there's one exception to that. There's this one cutscene where he runs around railing You know the cutscene, right? It's one of the worst cutscenes of the game in my opinion, because it's completely antithetical to his character and doesn't even make sense within confines of the specific scene. It's literally just him throwing a temper tantrum. At how upset he is because we're actually accomplishing things. <sighs> really, it has been argued many times. I have brought this up that it's actually probably sovereign going through that, not him. But I'm getting off topic. I don't actually have much else to say about Pharaoh. So let's move on to Novaria, which, as I said, is more interesting story-wise, not just because of its deliberate connections to Liara and her mother, Diana Troy, but also because of the fact that a lot of the little side stuff you can do there's more interesting. And well, we've got the whole—it's the system shock thing, right? Okay, so you're playing a sci fi game, and you come into a lab, and everyone's dead, and there's these horrible logs about the stuff that the experiments they've been doing there. Fill in the gaps, right? I mean, that's such a common thing at this point, it's kind of silly. You can also call it the alien thing, right? I mean, you, you get the idea. But it still works. There's a reason it's so common. It's an extremely effective storytelling tool, because it so naturally drags you into what's happening. So. This is also when we encounter the Rachni, and the choice that doesn't matter at all. I'm going to rant for just a second here. I've been trying not to take too many digs at Mass Effect 3. But I do have to say, this is probably the choice that pisses me off most in Mass Effect 3. Because most of the choices in Mass Effect 1 don't have much impact going forward. The only ones that really matter are who lives and who dies. Otherwise, it's not really a big deal. The only, the only, actually, that's not true. Who lives and who dies and what happens with the council are the only things that have any impact in two. And who lives and who dies are the only ones that have any impact in three. No matter who you pick, the council is still the council in three. And no matter whether you let the Rachni live or die, all it does is change your war score slightly in three. That's it. All this—do you have any idea how much I sat here the first time I played this game, hand wringing, debating if I should wipe this species out or if I should let them live? Because I mean, there's there's a lot to think about here, really. This is basically—I uh, I don't even have a real life equivalent. This is the the world consumers begging me for life because they insist they don't, you know, they don't eat habitable worlds. Usually, they were used against our will. Really, honest. Um, um, um. Don't worry, it's a moon. Um, um. Like you could see, because if you've been paying any attention to the lore, which of course I had been, the Rachni wars were terrifying. Now, this is also when we get the uh, implication, which is later in, made actually true, that the Rachni themselves were used as a weapon by the Reapers as part of their on, their vanguard. Not the uh, last time the Reapers would do exactly that. I'll talk more about that in just a second, but the relevant point is that this means nothing in Mass Effect 3, and that pisses me off. Moving on. (laughs) This leads to Vermeer. Now, is interesting, because its construction in the gameplay and in the narrative is very specific. You go to Vermeer, and one of the first things that does is, if you don't know what you're doing, Rex dies. Now, I state that very specifically, because it is harder than you'd think, if you don't know it's coming, that Rex is about to die. There are there are several ways to get Rex to live, and if you know what you're doing, it's very easy to make sure that Rex lives through this. But if you're doing a normal playthrough and not paying much attention, the game doesn't exactly have any hallmarks that Rex is about to die. So that's the first major death, and, well, I think that's part of the reason why rex receives a relatively small amount of characterization in this game he he, oh yeah sure he he talks about the the krogan problem the genophage which i'll bring up more in the second game because it's more relevant there and his hatred of the genophage and the fact that this is a huge problem Uh, he also brings up how you know he, he 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 gives stories about the kind of fights and battles he's done because he's old and he's venerated and you get the idea that he's not You look at someone like the Krogan, and they're big, and they're dumb, and they like fighting. And Rex is not that. He is... he's big, but he's not dumb. And even though he likes fighting, he doesn't like fighting for the sake of it. As he himself says, why bother trying to build a civilization when you can just go out and enjoy the next major fight, right? Rex is a long-term thinker, and I do like that they put those seeds very early on in the beginning of Mass Effect 1. So then Rex can live or die depending on what you do. Obviously, I want him to live because I have a brain, and Rex is my brother. So, excuse me, I I suppose I should say Zaydenra's brother, not mine, but you can tell I have a little bit of attachment to several of these characters. I mean, what do you want from me? I'm sure most of you do, too, especially if you've been listening to me for the last hour. God! Vermeyer then leads you to deciding who goes where with what with regard... It gives you several decisions for how the mission is to proceed, and depending how you do, that mission can go relatively well, relatively poorly. Then you have a lengthy lengthy section of combat, first on the Mako and then on foot as you're pushing through the installation. This then leads to the best scene in the game, which I'm going to skip over for just a moment because I want to talk about gameplay stuff for a second. And then that leads to our first real encounter with Saren in person, which leads to our first real sacrifice. And you do have to leave behind Mr. Alenko or Ashley Williams. Now, I want to talk about both characters really quickly here. Both characters could be qualified in the same way. Both of them are not as fleshed out as the others, and both of them get better in future games. That's pretty much both of them in a nutshell. They, they Don't mistake me. I'm not trying to say that they're the same. Mr. Alenko is someone who gives you insight into what it's like to be a biotic, you know, the headaches, and what it's like to deal with the military. He talks about it from... More of a high-tier thing. He comes across as more of an officer and someone who is very experienced with dealing with the brass of military life. Brass is the wrong word. I guess upper crust. I don't know what to call it. The career, the officer track, you know. Even though he himself isn't really the kind of officer material, that's more of the kind of experience he has been exposed to, and that's what you get from him. By contrast, Ashley's a grunt. She's down on the on the ground. She's a ground pounder. And she's someone who comes across as a grunt. As you might imagine, I tend to gravitate more towards Miss Williams, even though she is a bit specious. And I say a bit because I'm not sure if she's actually specious or if she's just ignorant. And I can only say that because of future games, because like I said, both of them get better. It also, as an aside, makes a bit of sense that both these characters have relatively low characterization, because the fact that both of them can leave the party. This is also, I have argued for some time, why Rex gets relatively less characterization in this game, compared to, say, Garrus, Liara, and Tali, all of whom get, by far, the lion's share of characterization and development in Mass Effect 1. Because you're always going to have them, and you cannot avoid having them, and, with, with one exception, you'll basically have them for the entire game. Anyways. The thing is, though... So you've got that mentality. You've got the officer versus the Gropo. The other problem, though, is... Well, Mr. Alenko is, uh... I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. In Mass Effect 1, specifically, he comes across as... I don't want to use the word cocky, but irritating is, frankly, the word I want to use. I know he gets better later. But Ashley comes across as far more affable, someone who really does want to get along with you and someone who, you know, cares. The problem is he doesn't have any major character flaws like she does. So between the two, if, if, we, if we really divorce ourselves for a second from our own uh, prejudices and biases and look at it, you can see why it's kind of designed to be a coin flip. Both characters narratively speaking are designed to be roughly equal in the view in the eyes of the player. The only thing that really pushed me against Alenko in my first playthrough, which is admittedly carried through even to this most recent playthrough, is the fact that if you happen to play a female shepherd, he automatically starts hitting on you shamelessly and sort of automatically assumes a relationship when none is. Yes, I know about the bug and of course, then there's the Liara thing, which is that that's just whatever so. You can kind of see how this is sort of a, uh, thing. Or at least it's designed to be. That's the point, after all. This is why Vermeier is probably the best world when it comes to gameplay and narrative construction in this game. It's where a lot of things come to a head. Um, it's where the big reveal happens. It's where we understand exactly how indoctrination works, which is another big revelation. It's probably the most dense combat section of the game, with the possible exception of the finale. And even that's debatable and it also has the most substantial consequences going forward, both for the game itself and for future games. It could be argued that if, if, for example, if Vermeer was removed from the narrative, it could be argued that Mass Effect 1 literally doesn't matter for Mass Effect 2 and 3, with regards to choices, I mean, with regards to what you choose. Oh, you'll see a couple of little side quest things from characters, because Mass Effect 2 does that all the time, but for the most part, it's not going to pop up. It's not going to matter. Anyways, so one of them dies, no matter what. You have to choose. And again, I think that's why they were designed to be relatively neutral relative to each other. So, that's fun. But I haven't gotten to the big one yet. And of course, I am talking about... Kirahi, who is obviously one of the best characters in this game. Now, personally, I actually think... No, okay, I'm not really kidding. I do actually like Kirahi, and I like that he was a recurring character. Oh, no, line, But, um... <laughs> he was even the thing we said about Mass Effect 3. Kirahi's cool. He really is. But, no, let's talk about the big one. Indoctrination! Indoctrination is probably the biggest real advantage the Reapers actually have. They have two big advantages. And it could be debated which is bigger. One is their shields. I know that sounds like a strange statement, but what I mean by that is the moment a Reaper's shields are down, they're just another ship, which you can blow up with conventional weapons. Because you can defeat them conventionally. But when those shields are up, those shields are so strong, a Reaper can destroy a ship by ramming it without real negative consequence to itself. That's insane. I can't put into words how, how much of a military advantage that is. This is also ignoring the fact that the Reapers have the ability to pull ridiculous maneuvers because of those shields. They actually specifically reference that on Vermeer. That ship just made a turn that would tear our ships in half. And this thing's like two kilometers long. So, these things are very durable, very agile, and very strong. Yeah... But Indoctrination, well, that's the other fun one. We get some inferences on how Indoctrination works, and it'll be something that's developed throughout the franchise, but all we know right now is all we need to know. It is a way the Reapers have to insidiously, but slowly, over time, convince you to be on their side. And the way it's prescribed here in Mass Effect 1 is that it is you convincing yourself, oh, well, I have to do this. This is the most logical path. If it's the choice between joining the Reapers willingly or being wiped out by them, there's no choice there, right? That's just logical. And Saren is right. The problem there is the fact that he is presuming that there is a joining them option, which there actually isn't. Uh, As has been described before, those who are indoctrinated who are left behind uh, just stand there and slowly starve to death. This is also ignoring the fact that in Mass Effect 2 we encounter people who are indoctrinated to the point where they impale themselves on dragon's teeth to turn them into husks. So, that's neat. In short, that's the insidiousness of indoctrination. It uses your own thoughts against you. Indoctrination, I, I talked before about how this is a fairly hard science franchise game. Because 2 is a little more soft science and 3 is... Just straight-up magic. But um, even in this game, indoctrination is actually probably one of the most magic things in the game. Even more than the Mass Effect field itself and, and the nature of how that works. Because it's never explained how it works. It's never explained the specific mechanics of how a Reaper is able to reach out to any sentient and sapient life and turn it against its own thoughts and use its own thoughts against it it's basically their superpower and like any good superpower in a comic book it's never explained how exactly it works all we know is the specific rules and the rules are it takes time and it takes exposure and that's it that's all we got even the fact that even that isn't really fully codified because there are plenty of individuals including us i feel like pointing out who have extensive exposure to reapers and reaper tech who don't get indoctrinated Unless you believe that particular theory about Mass Effect 3. So, and this brings me to my final point. As horrible as this sounds, I feel indoctrination should have been ejected from the Mass Effect franchise. I think it's one of the weaker parts of the narrative. Because it means that the enemy has mind control powers. And the moment the enemy has mind control powers, the rules change substantially. And all of a sudden becomes an enemy mind, who's against us, oh god, kind of a situation. And don't mistake me, they use it to good horrifying effect, especially in Mass Effect 2. The aforementioned scientists who impaled themselves on teeth is a good example. We also uh, get a little bit of insight into how bad it is when it comes to the Arrival DLC. But no matter how you look at it, it it feels like it's unnecessary. For example, Saren is indoctrinated. Okay. Why? Well, so he joins the Reapers. So you're saying that there's no reason Saren would join the Reapers willingly otherwise. Well, what do you mean? Well, let's just say Sovereign reached out to Saren and said, Hey, we're coming to destroy everyone who doesn't join us. And could just convince him of that. You're trying to tell me that Reaper agents couldn't infiltrate people sufficiently without actually literally mind-controlling them. Really? This is also ignoring the fact that there's another way to do this very simply. Cybernetic implants. Funnily enough, this is actually what they do with Saren, although there's some graphics bugs, and let's not get into that. But I point this out because indoctrination is um, magic. It just happens by being in proximity to Reaper technology, not Reapers themselves. It's not a thing they push out. It just happens to you. And It's there's no way to cure it, there's no way to undo it, Um, unless you count the ending of Mass Effect 3, but let's not get into that. So instead, by making it an actual circuit that you put into someone that helps take over their higher brain functions, you keep the mind control element, but you make it so it's curable, it can be removed, and you make it so it's identifiable. It gives the the player and the characters something they can do about it. Because there's no identifying indoctrination. There's no way to detect someone who's indoctrinated unless they happen to have a chip pilt into their brain. Think about it. Either way, like I said, I don't care for indoctrination, but I do care for Sovereign. For years, I have wished I had Sovereign's voice, because it's awesome. I wish I talked like that normally. I'm not even kidding. That would be amazing. A little awkward at drive throughs, but still amazing. The way that Sovereign talks to it's a wonderful scene. It's 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 the wham moment. It's it's the moment when you know Shodan shows up and it's like I am Shodan. Because we get the a huge amount of exposition there, both in what Sovereign says and what Sovereign is lying about. Now, I'll talk a bit more about that specifically later, because in this game, we take most of what he says at face value. But for the most part, we also can presume that he is lying. Why? Because one of the things he tells us is that it is impossible for us to to resist them, and it is impossible for us to kill them. We kill Sovereign in this game. Therefore, by logical deduction, we have proven his statements as a lie. Now, this is another excellent insight into how Reapers work. And this kind of ties into the Rachni thing earlier. Reapers, as I mentioned earlier, they have those shields. And that is a huge military advantage. But if you bypass that advantage, guess what? They're they're just another ship. So naturally, they lean heavily on the psychology side of things. They, They act very carefully. They act secretly. They act in the background. Remember, Sovereign, the cycle was actually supposed to start, uh, I think, like 1,400 years, or something like that. I forget the exact time. Hundreds of years before now, the cycle was supposed to start up again, and the Reapers were supposed to start the next culling cycle. And each culling cycle takes centuries because, of how, because they're not super invincible, whacked out amazing. Oh, they're better than us in several ways, but they're not the frickin' Borg, <laughs> Right? it would still take them time and effort to slowly sweep the galaxy. And this is why, if you remember, the initial part of their invasion is always to cut off the relays, to isolate each portion of the galaxy so no unified resistance can be formed. In short, the Reapers fight smart. And that's kind of the point. They fight smart because they have to. They can't be death-walking. They have to be very careful and cautious. They need to use tactics. They need to use strategy. Now, this, of course, helps to explain a lot of what Sovereign says to us, because Sovereign is trying to get across ideas to us and trying to, you know, continue that strategy. On the off chance we survive this, he has now told us things that will lead us down a certain path, which he knows will assist his aid, his overall, you know, goals. Now, he ended up being wrong because we didn't end up killing him, but you get the idea. Nevertheless, we can take quite a things, few things that Sovereign says at face value. The nature of what the Reapers are, these amalgate co- combination machine life-form things, and we can also understand a little bit of exactly you know, why they operate the way they do. The culling idea it won't actually come forward until 2, but we do know at this point that this is something that has been done many times before, that this is only the latest iteration of the cycle which is a very science fiction-y kind of trope, and very horrifying. For probably one of the only times ever in fiction, I'm willing to forgive the millions of years thing, because it makes sense in context, given the the nature of this. So we fight Sharon. the nuke goes off, Alenko dies, or Williams, depending on your choice. Um, We go to Elos... We see Vigil, an awesome song, plays. We get a little bit of the other side of the the Reaper invasion, the fact that it takes a while, the fact that they cut us off, the fact that some uh, Protheans came here specifically to ensure that at least one message would get to the next cycle, which is Vigil. And if you think about it, thanks in many parts to the Protheans' inferences, both here and as we'll find out in Mass Effect 3, that's one of the reasons we're able to do something about the cycle this time it's it's the most logical thing, and it again goes back to what I mentioned about how the one of the Reaper's biggest advantages is their I I'm saying that wrong. One of the reasons the Reapers keep succeeding is because they use careful strategy and tactics. If you I want you to imagine, just just hear me out, that every ten thousand years, whatever, um, a race of mole people pops out of the earth pops out of the ground and just kills all human life, except for a few, and then goes back underground. You, now, you, first of all, you'd probably look at me like I'm crazy. But second of all, we have no defense against that. Not really. Why? Because we don't know it's a threat that exists. It's actually kind of related, I know this is going to sound strange, to vampire ego syndrome. In short, the, the greatest advantage the mole people, the vampires, the reapers, have, is the fact that we don't know about them. The moment we know our enemy exists, we can start studying them. We can start thinking about how to fight them. We can start learning how to fight them. We can start developing technologies and patterns and industries and whatever it needs in order to be able to defeat them. So one of the greatest advantages we have this time around of the cycle is the fact that we know that it's happening, is the fact that the Reapers are there. Remember, some of the Protheans went to... So the Protheans actually did three things, I'm sorry. They set up the Vigil Initiative. They did the thing on uh, Thessia, And, of course, they went to the Citadel itself and ensured that it was designed in a way so it wouldn't click on when it was supposed to. This led to Sovereign having to go about things the slow way, which he's been doing for some time now. So, because of the fact that the, the attack didn't come before we knew it was coming, and we gained some understanding of our enemy before they actually fought us, we stand a chance, because now we know what we're fighting at least, if as long as people can actually acknowledge the Reapers exist. So this leads to the final fight on the Citadel. A nice bookend. And uh, some really cool scenes. You know, the, the Destiny Ascension can live or die, depending on you. It makes no real difference. Not really. <laughs> uh, we fight Saren. Sovereign pushes himself into Saren for some reason. Uh, this then leads to us defeating Saren, which disrupts Sovereign's control, which leads to Sovereign's shields going down, which, as I already mentioned, means he's a ship, he dies. And then Shepard dies! No! But then she's fine. I've said for years that that was one of the bigger mistakes. In fact, for a long time I have suspected, although I have no proof of this, that Shepard was originally supposed to die here and not in the intro to 2, and then Project Lazarus was supposed to happen. I could be wrong about that, of course, But it's such an obvious and terrible fake-out. It actually irritates me every time I play this game. And then we get the generic ending. Because, honestly, the Mass Effect games have never had good endings. (laughs) And that leads us to the end of one. (sighs) I had a lot to talk about. More than I thought, that's for certain. I hope you've enjoyed my incredibly amateurish thoughts on a game I know only a little bit of. I'm sorry. I really am very nervous about all of this. It probably shows. I hope you've enjoyed. That's all I really care about. Next up, I'll be talking about Mass Effect 2, which is going to be even trickier to talk about because I have a lot more character stuff to cover there. So, I'll see you next time, guys.